93.5 WHMP. And good afternoon, and thank you so much for joining us on this, the day after Martin Luther King Day, um, when uh, uh, so many wonderful and important activities happen throughout the country to celebrate the legacy of Martin Luther King and to um, officially recognize what a long distance we have to go before uh, eradicating racism and uh, its horrific vestiges in every corner of our society. But uh, meanwhile, hello to you, Dan. Hey, Buzz. How's it going? How was your weekend? Your long weekend? Well, my weekend was great. I We were grandparenting down in New York and enjoying, uh, we went to the Whitney and saw this great uh, hopper exhibit. We, we went out, we actually had a date, a wonderful evening to ourselves before we went and uh, joined the kids. We mm. also had a dinner with two 14-year-old girls, our one granddaughter and, and her best friend. And that was just so cute. You forget <laughs> what it's like to have young teenagers. Were, were they so on their was, phone or were they not? No, they they know better. <laughs> <laughs> not, not because of any threat, but because they're polite enough. Of course, to, of to course. Stay off the phone. But... Um, at one point, she she did take my phone and took self portraits and did bizarre things to them. So she ends up with horns and sunglasses, and I don't know what. But, <laughs> you know. Um, but on a much more serious note, Dan, I know that you've been following, uh, as I have, uh, what's been going on in the Ukraine um, and this latest attack. Um, I just it's very hard for me to refer to it as anything other than a war crime by any definition I know of what a war crime is. Russia attacked this apartment building in central Ukrainian city of Dnipro, I think it's pronounced, and killing this time at least 40 civilians. There's, you know, the Mariupol theater. There was uh, that uh, in Kharkiv city, there were almost 500 civilians. Mm -hmm. According to the United Nations data as reported by Reuters um, yesterday, um, we have over 7,000 civilians that we know are in body bags and another 11,300 that have been injured, um, according to the UN data. And uh, I am filled with questions and concerns, but fortunately, we have Mount Holyoke Professor of Politics and International Relations um, to ask our questions to Andy Ryder, who is truly an expert on political violence and um, and uh, how to get around to peace building. So, Andy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Buzz. Um, I I guess the best place to start is what, in, in, in terms of the scholarship around this, this war, what do you think Putin expects to get out of it? What incentives does he have for continuing it despite international pressure, and boycotts, et cetera, that Russia's been suffering. What does Putin hope to get out of it? Um, I think he hopes to win militarily and capture um, a good part of Ukraine. And that's been his goal all along. It's not obviously gone well for him, um, but in the same sense, he's so far in that he's not going to just back out and surrender and give up. Um, so at this point, his sort of a stake of his whole regime is on continuing and winning this to some extent. He's got to be able to claim some victory or he's not going to stop. Because really, if he can't produce something here, then he loses all the support um, he has back home. 
I don't know. As a U.S. citizen, maybe it's self-righteous uh, for me to even be saying it because we've been involved in so many misadventures of the sort ourselves. But how does he expect, I think over 45 million people, how does he expect those people when they're watching uh, civilians, neighbors, relatives, children slaughtered by these by these Russian bombings in, while in their apartments. How does he expect to be able to control a population in an occupation that uh, the population holds so hostile? It's a good question. I mean, I think we've seen some of the war crimes and things that you've mentioned. We've seen his strategy, which is through mainly through fear uh, in a lot of the regions that Russia has occupied. They've taken over pretty brutally. They've shipped children off and hundreds back to Russia to take them away from their families. And there's a whole process of you know, banning the Ukrainian language, changing the curriculum in schools, and just essentially forcing Russian culture and control over those areas. And so, um, yeah, it's not going to be by winning their hearts and minds, so to speak. Hey, Buzz, if I could just quickly interrupt, just wanted to let you know what your question about how Putin would be able to control the population. I read an article early on during the war that said that he would likely appoint Viktor Yanukovych was the former president of Ukraine who had more pro-Russian leaning. Like I heard reports that if he had gotten control early on, that's how he was going to try to maintain the peace. Well, what do you think about that, Andy? Yeah, I mean, it definitely sounds like something he would have tried to do. I mean, you think about this at the beginning. The last time you and I talked about this was last spring, and you know, Putin sort of thought he was going to move in pretty quickly and be welcomed in open arms in some extent, and that Ukraine would just sort of fold and he'd be able to take control, install a puppet regime, um, like Dan just said, and uh, and move on. And he was very surprised by the local resistance that happened. And you have to tip your cap to the Ukrainians for fighting back and the Western aid and support wouldn't have even materialized had they not been able to hold out um, for so long. But that was initially, I think, you know, Putin's idea, come in, use military force, topple the regime, install the president that I liked before anyway, and uh, sort of control the state from um, behind the scenes, much like he dominates the Belarusian politics right now. But given that it's not going so well, and, and given Yanukovych was so unpopular with so many Ukrainians, uh, he fled, right? He fled to Russia. Yes. Um, yes. I mean, I just don't, I'm mystified as to how any rational person could think that this is going well enough to to persist and to persist not in a military to military uh, uh, struggle, but rather by bombing another apartment building. It, it just I, it calls up a question. I know you've thought a lot about this. I know you've spoken a lot about this and written a lot about this. How can the rest of the world hold Putin accountable for what's clearly based on every report that we see war crimes? Yeah, I think it depends on what we mean by accountable, because if our imagination of accountable is being arrested, having handcuffs, being tried in some sort of international court and being put on jail like the Nazi leaders after World War II, that type of accountability is, is almost not going to happen. The likelihood of that is so, so small. I don't even think we can consider it. And so being held accountable in what other ways, um, you know, really it's going to be domestically where he'll be held mostly accountable and uh, whether the Russian people or others in the government will, will remove him from power. Uh, the only way that that can happen too is if 
again, he loses the war. I hate to come back to military as being a solution to things, but in many ways, force is the only language I think Putin understands. And so to have any sort of accountability for all these war crimes that have happened, to be able to stop them from continuing to happen is going to require Western military aid to force Putin out of the country. I think, to me, that's the bottom line. Others might disagree, but that's my view of the situation. Yeah, and I, that that view makes sense, but I can't help but ever the Pollyanna, ever naive, I think back to what happened with the Balkan Wars, and I think back of uh, Serbian officials who were actually eventually charged and tried for crimes against humanity and genocide in those wars, and um, I, you know, I'm not an international uh, uh, the relations scholar like you are, but um, what's the difference? I guess that's my question. Yeah, well, first, it's okay to be optimistic and positive. I think that's okay. And then many people would have sat in the former Yugoslav wars and said, there's no way Milosevic will be put on trial, and he was. So sometimes things happen in, in positive ways we don't expect. I think the main difference there, though, was that you had NATO launching a major air campaign and uh, being on the ground with troops and are able to go and arrest people. And those countries are sort of at the whim of what the U.S. powers wanted at the time. Uh, the Western powers may be able to kick Putin out of Ukraine eventually, uh, but it's not going to be occupying Russia and it being able to force the Russian government to do anything. So I think that's the main the main difference there. There's the, Russia will still, no matter how this war ends, Russia is still going to exist as a powerful state with its own government and will not be occupied or dictated to by Western Western powers. So that's where I feel like the leadership may be difficult to put them on trial. That being said, others who travel the world, members of this Wagner group, the private mercenaries is supported by the government. If those people are captured elsewhere in the world, if Russian um, you know, commanders are traveling in the future, they could be arrested places put on trial. So I do think some people involved in the war crimes in Ukraine right now will be prosecuted over the next couple of decades, various places in the world. I do not see Putin being prosecuted. Yeah, I want to circle back to the Wagner group, but just to, to flesh this out, I know that you've written and, and uh, studied uh, extensively about intra-national conflict, that is civil war kind of conflict, um, civil strife within a country as opposed to international, which is between two sovereigns. What do you think is happening in Russia? We see people on the street protesting. We hear, excuse the Western press, which, you know, is not the most reliable source on this, but of people who are really resisting uh, conscription into the Russian military, people even who are fleeing to other Western European uh, countries, even over borders like Poland's, uh, uh, sometimes illegally just to escape the possibility of being drafted into service for Ukraine. What do you think the likelihood is of an, in, an intra-Russia response that brings Putin to his knees or forces him to escape? In the near term, I don't think it's very likely at all. Uh, in order to have some sort of armed movement to be able to force a government down, you need to have lots of people who are very upset and the ability to arm themselves to remove a government. And the Russian government has too much control right now to let any of that happen. The people wouldn't be able to mobilize and challenge things. There's, the government has information that spies all over. If any type of protest can be broken up fairly easily. Uh, the one hope uh, would be, though, is if uh, there's a peaceful 
movement against the Russian government. Uh, studies, international relations studies actually show that, that nonviolent movements are more effective than violent movements, in part because they're usually bigger, there's less of a barrier to join. Anybody can just go out. You don't have to be trained in how to use a weapon. Uh, they're harder to crack down on because it looks really, really bad uh, if you're just shooting into a crowd of a bunch of women and children. And so if there are enough people who are upset with the government and particularly trying to avoid uh, conscription or feeling like conscription is too broad and is taking away their, their members of their family, if we were to see large tens of thousands of protests, large protests in the capital that sort of shut down the city. Um, at some point, the government may have uh, no other option but to change course. Uh, um, so I actually think that's the best the best chance for change is not some sort of civil war within Russia, but a nonviolent protest that could force the government to change its policy. Well, I get as a child of the 60s, that resonates for me because that's what we tried to do peacefully. Uh, speaking of Martin Luther King, who's, who's uh, uh, yesterday, uh, news memory yesterday was dedicated to he that's what he preached more than anything else is nonviolent resistance to injustice and unfairness. But uh, what about I mean, in terms of scholarship in the academy, you might know things that we in the media and the public don't know, which is do Russian does the Russian population get enough information? to be able to make an informed judgment that they want to engage in peaceful resistance? That's a good question, and I hate to make broad statements about the Russian population. I, I would say it varies. Um, I think that might be the, the cop-out answer. Uh, I'm sure some people have more access to Western information um, than others. Other parts of the country, though, our only access is to sort of Russian propaganda, particularly rural areas, the people who support Putin the most. Um, he still has a lot of, of, of support in particular parts of the country by people who were, uh, you know, so disaffected by the fall of the Soviet Union, who lost jobs, who feel like their lives are not doing very well. And those people are only sort of getting fed, you know, Russian propaganda. Other parts, more urban areas, more highly educated people, they're getting more access to um, international news sources and know more of what's going on. Um, Got it. We are talking with Matt, Matt Hoya, Professor of Politics and International Relations, uh, Andy Reeder. He is actually a somebody whose whose work has involved these, well, both intra and international um, uh, violent um, conflicts and um, peacemaking and peace agreements and strategic use of violence and all the things that we need to understand. Um, what we're looking at in the Ukraine and what the prospects for peace are. When we come back, I want to talk more about this Wagner group that Professor uh, Reiner mentioned, and we'll be right back after these messages. Do stay with us. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Comedy as a weapon for social change? Really? Really. Join us for a preview of the upcoming Benefit for the Literacy Project at the Academy of Music when we speak with Tim Lovett, the comedian, and the project's executive director, Judith Roberts. That will be Wednesday at 9 o'clock. Get in on the conversation. Bill Newman. Weekdays at 9 and again at 5. WHMP. News, information, and the arts. 
If your Spanish-speaking employees spoke better English, would that be good for business? If your English-speaking employees spoke a little Spanish, would that be good for business? The International Language Institute delivers workplace language training, improving communication among co-workers and with customers. You get financial assistance with the Massachusetts Workplace Training Express Fund. They cover 50 to 100% of the cost. So let's get going. Call or email the International Language Institute in downtown Northampton. Most of us participate in sports like the weekly golf game, tennis match, trail run, or ski outing. Whether you're a high school, collegiate, or professional athlete, or weekend warrior, the same rules apply. Follow an exercise regimen that will help you build a strong foundation and prevent injury in the first place. I'm Dr. Connor Ziegler, sports medicine specialist and board-certified orthopedic surgeon at New England Orthopedic Surgeons. Sports medicine is my passion, and my surgical specialty involves arthroscopic and open procedures of the shoulder, elbow, hip, and knee. One of the most common injuries I treat are anterior cruciate ligament or ACL tears, which typically occur from non-contact twisting injuries in a variety of sports. Not infrequently, ACL tears occur with injury to other structures as well. At New England Orthopedic Surgeons, we offer comprehensive management of your condition no matter the severity. But if you find that you've experienced an injury, my surgical team is dedicated to providing outstanding care to help you recover and get you back in the game. For more information, visit neortho.com. Did you know that you can prevent domestic and sexual violence? You can say something. We all can say something. Together, we can do so much. Say Something is the domestic and sexual violence prevention program at Safe Passage. Join a prevention lab to build your skills and find opportunities to say something to prevent violence. Join us and help make your community safe and healthy for everyone. Get more information or sign up for a prevention lab at saysomethingnow.org. Want to support the kind of talk you hear on the afternoon buzz? Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite WHMP show. And you'll be supporting the local news, Valley Talk, and progressive voices you hear right here on WHMP. Let us know about your message. Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. And add your message to our mission. And hear your message right here on WHMP. Your message at whmp.com. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And we're back with, with uh, Andrew Ryder, the Mount Holyoke Professor of Politics and International Relations. We're uh, trying to make sense of the uh, nightmares that we uh, see in Ukraine. And I wanted to ask you about this Wagner group. Um, what is the Wagner group? Andy. The Wagner Group is a, a private mercenary group that often acts on behalf of the Russian government. Um, this is a way in which Russia could have in influence in many countries, Mali, Central African Republic, other places in the world, without being sort of directly involved itself. Uh, everyone knows they're supported by the government. Everyone knows the leader is a close friend of Putin. Um, but it was a way to sort of have influence without directly having Russian troops on the ground. Now, I, I will say that this has changed a little bit in the Ukraine war, whereas it used to be the Wagner Group sort of working on the behest of Putin. Now there's a competition and the Wagner Group is trying to show that it's better than the regular Russian military and, um, and often acting sometimes without, um, you know, clear permission from uh, what's going on in the Russian military um, and leadership. So it's trying to carve out a, a sort of a, a 
yeah, carve out a, a place for itself to be a dominant political actor too in this. And so that's where maybe we can't say it's sort of just a puppet now of the Russian government. It's really trying to become its own force. But I have read that it, uh, in order to bolster its mercenary ranks, it recruits tens of thousands, we don't know how many convicts from prisons across Russia. Um, at least that's what Western intelligence and Russian human rights groups tell us. Is that your understanding? Yes, yeah. Um, there's a wide recruitment, lots of you know, videos of it that are very clear. Um, lots of reports telling convicts, look, if you go and you serve six months on the front lines, your, uh, you know, your sentence will be commuted and you'll get, you know, compensation paid, et cetera, for you. Um, if, if you're killed, your families will get money. Um, although reports that nobody's receiving anything and most of these people aren't lasting six months in the line. Um, uh, you know, you, you and I talked about some of the the news coming out of you know groups only a few people surviving in these battles. Um, you have, these people aren't well trained, right? They're they're convicts being pulled out of prison who are thinking, well, at least this might be better than being in jail, and they're giving me a good deal here. And then they're finding out they're just thrown in the front lines without much training and going up against pretty strong Ukrainian forces, and um, and most of them aren't making it back. And even even worse, if this is true, I know that. There's one fellow by the name of Andre Medvedev, who's now in Norway. He deserted. He was a uh, platoon leader in the Wagner group, he says. And he said that he just witnessed uh, himself. Um, not only in his platoon did only three of the 30 men survive, as you said, but he's watched Russian commanders take unwilling uh, men uh, into a shooting field and shooting them because they didn't want to re-sign up for another mercenary term of six months. That's scary stuff, if true. Yeah, yeah, uh, but also not um, you know, not unforeseen. You're getting people who don't really want to fight and you need them to fight, so you're going to find a way to make them to fight, which if you can't influence them anyway, uh, and if you're not paying the money, if their families aren't getting the money, then there's no financial incentive for them to fight. And so the only way you can make these people fight is through fear of they'll be killed if they don't fight, right? So this is a, it's not unexpected that we would see something like that in a situation. When you're recruiting people or people are volunteering to fight, they're doing because they have a motive, they want to win, they want to help the government, they're patriotic. These people are there as a means to an end. And if that is not materializing, then they're just going to try to move on. So the only way you can keep them there is by threatening them. Well, I guess my final question, Andy Ryder, is is probably an unfair one. Uh, you are now a, you're in charge of NATO, and you want to bring peace to Europe. You have this horrific war raging, and you don't want to join the war directly. What would you do? Well, it is an unfair question, Buzz. <laughs> I guess the question is, how do you balance supporting Ukraine without escalating a conflict from the Russian retaliation? Well, I guess my response would be, I think the conflict's already escalated and I think that you you have to just go more in than, than the West is doing. Uh, I think they need tanks and they need airplanes and they need more sophisticated military equipment, more long range missiles. Uh, the fact that the Ukraine is standing up to Russia with what it has now is pretty amazing because the West has still not given them a lot of stuff that they could. And I think they need to do more of that. There seems to be this hesitation. Well, if we give them that, that's going to make Russia mad. And then that's going to cross a line. And Russia's, but as you talked about to start this, Russia's already bombing cities, is committing terrible atrocities. 
it's not like Russia can escalate that much more. Um, it, you know, the only thing would be going nuclear or something like that. I don't anticipate that happening. So to me, you know, there's no real, uh, no real choice. If I'm in charge of NATO, I have to give more sophisticated weaponry to, um, to help Ukraine win. If there's some sort of peace and, and Ukraine is part of it still occupied, then it'll only be a temporary peace because Russia will just restart it years later. Um, and so to end this, really, Russia is going to have to be kicked out of Ukrainian territory, and that will take NATO tanks and other things in Ukrainian hands. They're very capable of doing, doing the work on their own and very willing um, to do this on their own, which you have to, again, thank them for essentially standing up for democracy in the West and being the ones to die on the battlefield. Uh, and I think if I were in charge of NATO, buzz, I would give them more weapons. Can, can I just quickly? Yeah, I guess that's your answer is... is, is... <laughs> Um, can I can do I do more of what we've been doing? Yeah. More of what NATO's been doing, what the U.S. has been doing, what various um, NATO countries have been doing, and um, I'll tell you, you are a wonderful resource, and, and I'm very grateful uh, for your time. And I probably will exploit your generosity in the not too distant future when the next horrific thing happens. Um, where well, I, it, in that case, ahead. I hope I never talk to you again, Buzz. <laughs> Well, we have been talking with Professor Andy Ryder. He's an expert on political violence, um, on conflict resolution and peace building. And um, thank you so much for joining us today on the Afternoon Buzz. You're welcome. Okay, we're going to be back with Playbill with Jackie Walsh. And we're going to be talking with uh, the director um, of Little Mermaid. It's extraordinary costumery. Um, and set uh, that's going to begin, I think, on the 19th. We'll hear more about it. We'll be back with Jackie Walsh and talking about the Amherst Community Theater's production of Little Mermaid right after these messages. Stay with us. You want me to believe? This is the afternoon but buzz I see with your Buzz eyes. Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Like I see through the water that runs down my drain You fasten all the triggers For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A national poll conducted by UMass Amherst is revealing where attitudes on race stand. While most Americans acknowledge white privilege, 6 in 10 oppose federal reparations for black people. The poll had 1,000 respondents nationwide between January 5th through the 9th. It showed 67% of Americans surveyed expressed anger that racism exists. But when it comes to creating federal policy to provide payment for the descendants of enslaved people, most Americans are against it, and 4 in 10 Americans feel the federal government definitely should not pursue it. A behavioral health and support center is coming to East Hampton. Part of the former Manchester hardware store downtown was raised on Friday to make way for the new center. Ben Kraft, vice president for community engagement for CHD, says the new center will be the community hub of children's behavioral health services, which are delivered into homes. Kraft says this will allow them to significantly increase access to mental health for children in the East Hampton, Hampshire, and Hampton County communities. The Center for Human Development is expected to go before the planning board in February. For its site plan approval.
Westfield police are asking for the public's help in identifying suspects who stole pride flags from a home on South Maple Street. This is the fifth time in the last year that this address has been targeted for theft and vandalism of similar items. Police say that suspects then burned the flags behind the YMCA before being picked up in a vehicle. Anyone with information is asked to call Westfield police. Mostly cloudy this afternoon. Could be a few scattered light showers as well. A high of 42 to 46. Variable clouds tonight. Chance for some sprinkles or flurries. Overnight low 26 to 32. Sun cloud mix tomorrow. A high of 44 to 48. Upper 30s. Some rain is possible Thursday afternoon. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis. 101.5 WHMP. Hey, it's Jason with the Weather Channel and SnowCountry.com. This winter, there's now updated COVID-19 booster shots designed for recent Omicron variants. Learn more and schedule your updated booster at vaccines.gov, sponsored by Pfizer and BioNTech. There's plenty of places to get a well-rounded day of skiing and riding in and plenty of space to do at midweek. Snowmakers continue to work hard to freshen the surfaces and open up even more trails. At Jiminy Peak, 27 runs 9 miles of terrain action till 10 every night of the week. Catamount skiing close to 20 trails, about two dozen for Wachusett. They ski till 9.30 every night. Ski Sundown, Connecticut on 90% of their trails. Action till 10 p.m. 7 nights a week. Stratton, 55 runs all of which are groomed for you 24-hour snowmaking at upper swallow glade get my drift and a couple others and smugglers notch 40 plus trails this report brought to you by smugglers notch vermont visit smugs.com and check out more at snowcountry.com i'm jason dean you love your car we all do it's part of our dna if your vehicle gets into an accident the people to turn to are the collision experts at fort hill collision services in amherst Fort Hill lets you leave your concerns at the door. They'll fix your vehicle to better than factory standards and deal with your insurance company from start to finish. Fort Hill is locally owned and operated. They're part of the community and they guarantee the work they do every time. Trust Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9, Amherst, and online at forthillcs.com. We believe in the boundless potential of young people. At Junior Achievement of Western Massachusetts, it inspires our work to prepare Western Massachusetts youth for real-world career and financial success. We offer in-school financial literacy and career exploration programs and after-school young entrepreneur initiatives. JA is committed to the future of youth throughout Western Massachusetts. To learn more about Junior Achievement or to participate as a school, volunteer, or supporter, visit jawm.org. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And this is Playbill with Jackie Walsh. Jackie, is there much in the way of theater happening locally? There actually, we're sort of at a low point as far as how much theater is happening, but the theater that's happening is really exciting. So, um, yeah. So just a few things. So um, at the Majestic Theater, which always does spectacular work in West Springfield, there's a play called Native Gardens. And you know that whole trend where you decide not to mow your lawn and just let things grow as they will or maybe plant some things that are um, native to this area? Oh, never. I would never do that. <laughs> well, it's about this uh, couple who move into an affluent Washington, D.C. neighborhood and they decide to do that, and the couple next door, I'm sure it starts out very nice, friendly, but it soon becomes not so friendly because the other couple um, 
they compete, their garden like competes in these garden club, club competitions. So it sounds a bit like um, God of Carnage where the two couples meet and everything's fine and then it just goes south very fast. So that sounds really cool. Um, and they are still asking people to wear a mask at that show. Then there's a couple of Shakespeare-related things happening. There's auditions for Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, which I think is one of like the top ten as far as how often they're produced Shakespeare shows. So that's at the Academy of Music right here in Northampton. Um, it looks like it's somewhat precast. There's some parts that um, weren't listed, but Toby Belch, who I think is one of the most fun characters in Shakespeare, is is available. So if anyone likes that character, you know, look over your Twelfth Night and go for auditions. That's in early February. Put on by Shakespeare Stage. They have a Facebook page. So just go there. And then we have Romeo and Juliet at Shakespeare and Company the weekend before Valentine's Day, Saturday, February 11th at 7 p.m. The Northeast Regional Tour of Shakespeare is putting that on. Tickets are not very um, steep for Berkshire um, theater standards, 15 to $35. So that would be a great thing to do as a, a pre-Valentine thing. But the big thing, even though not many things are happening, many, many people are involved in a play that's going up this weekend and next weekend in Amherst at the Bowker Auditorium. It is The Little Mermaid. Um, Kimberly Overtree Carlin is directing, and the play... Starts this Thursday at 7.30, Friday at 7.30, Saturday 1 p.m., Sunday 1 p.m., and then the following weekend, Thursday the 26th through the 28th, it's at night, Thursday, Friday, Saturday at 7.30. Then there's a matinee Saturday, matinee Sunday, and an evening show on, on Saturday. So um, here is Kim well, Carlin. Jackie, Go ahead. Before you, begin sure. your, before you begin your conversation with Kimberly, yeah. I just have to ask... This is a musical that's supposed to take place under the sea. How challenging is that? Yeah, and maybe Kim can tell us how they solved that problem. So Kim Carlin, also known as Kimberly Overtree Carlin, how are you? You're here, right? Yes, I'm great. Glad okay. to be here. Great. Thanks for having me, Jackie. Yeah, so that's a great opening question. So a lot of it, not all of it, takes place under the sea. How do you portray that? Well, it's it's mostly the magic of theater, <laughs> but I will say we we have a lot of things that we're doing. One of them is we're flying some of our actors. Yeah. Um, I I won't say exactly who. I bet you could guess. Um, and to to sort of emulate the flying, and we also have a group of water dancers, and these are dancers who are are showing the movement of the water throughout the production. Mm. And then on top of that, our costume designer Ann Steinhauser has really put a lot of effort and thought into making the costumes move um, in a way that would happen under the water. So we've we've got a lot of elements put together to get get the right mood and I guess I should also say on top of that our lighting designer Amber has put together some some pretty magical lighting elements that also sort of send us under the sea which is pretty amazing mm. so what do you love about this production I know that's pretty broad I'm sure you love a lot about it but tell us some of that yeah I I think well I love the story I love sort of the the charming idea of wanting to be somewhere that you're not 
and to be interested in in the world greater than what you can currently see. Um, and how like, how does that how does that work in this play? For those who are not familiar with the Little Mermaid, sure, sure, sure. You know, the the Little Mermaid. Some people may have seen the Disney cartoon from many years ago. I think it came out in 1989. Wow. Um, I know it's a long time ago. It you know it portrayed the story of of a young mermaid who falls in love with a prince who lives on the land, a human. Mm. And she trades her voice, her beautiful singing voice, um, to be able to have a chance with that prince. And the stage production sort of spins that into a a, sort of a deeper story about what it means to give up your voice, not just that, a beautiful singing voice, but your way to communicate, your way to to share your feelings and thoughts and uh, express what you're thinking. And I just love the the spin that this particular, the way it's written is really incredible. And our actors are just a lovely, lovely group of human beings who have really been working hard on just portraying this charming story in a way that really shows how it could be, you know, a journey for a young woman to find her voice. Mm-hmm. So um, just to let people know, I'm working backstage. So I've seen, you um, are. Uh, yes, <laughs> I'm moving some stuff around. So, um, yes, you are. yeah. So, um, so I've seen the show and it's really great. Um, tell us about COVID. I know the, the play was supposed to come out, I think, 20, um, was it 2020? Originally? 2021. Okay. We started planning in 2019, and, and then 2020 hit, and we were planning to put the show on um, January of 2021, mm. and we had to postpone it for two years. Oh so that meant that we did a lot of planning and, and, and deciding things and creating before we knew we weren't going to be able to do it in a year. And then all of those ideas started to percolate. And, you know, I think Anne and I were on speed dial for much of the pandemic, just (laughs) talking about ideas and creating new ways to portray other characters. We sort of, we've added a couple special um, creatures that you'll just have to come to the show. If you want to see our added special creatures that were sort of, came from our, started as buds in our mind and grew as we were in lockdown and couldn't do the show yet. So it, it, it sort of had this, this whole other time of creation that most plays don't get, which is kind of exciting and made it really, a, really an exciting process for us. Right. And we had Ann Steinhauser in a few weeks ago, the costumer for the show. She has made, with, with help, 91 costumes, I'd believe and some some puppets um other people ha- helped her do or did themselves um <clears throat> and i saw i went to our studio and looked at them but in person it's totally a different experience they are just gorgeous and funny and colorful they're amazing yeah they really really are and one of the wonderful things that we got to do is the choreographer Sue Dresser and i got to go to Anne's studio and think about and plan some of the ideas that we had for some of the staging that was informed by some of the costumes. So it's, it's a very well-designed choreography that goes with the costumes, which isn't always a luxury that you get in community theater. You sort of have to go blind. And this time we didn't. And it was, it's, 
it made for a really exciting process. Mm. And your Ariel has the most beautiful voice, and she's she she looks very young. Tell us a little bit about what having this sort of experience does for children. I mean, there's many. What are there? 30 or 40 children in the play. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I will say that Anna Plummer is an adult. She, mm-hmm. she, does, she does a really good job of portraying the innocence of, a, of this young mermaid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but all around her are lots of children. And I think there are many children in the show this year who have never been in a show before in their life. And, you know, there just wasn't as many opportunities during the lockdown of COVID. And so to them, you know, I, I like seeing, you know, first we, we are sort of starting the rehearsal process and then they get to hear the piano and then they get to learn the dance and then they go into Bowker and they get to, to see the, the set and then they put on their costumes. And, you know, the first day that they put on their costumes, they, they basically just, you know, had a run on the costume shop. There was a little too many people in the room at the same time. They were so excited. And to sort of, you know, one of the things that Anne has done is really made sure that every single person in the show, no matter what role they play, has had some really strong attention put on their costume. Very cool. And well, we're, we're talking with Kim Carlin, who's the director of The Little Mermaid, which is um, show, being shown at Bowker Auditorium on the UMass campus this weekend and next. And we need to take a break, but we'll be back soon with Kim Carlin. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Now you the fish is happy as after the waves go the fish on the land is happy. This hot Thursday in the bowl, but fish in the bowl is not. To play this game, you've got to be as sharp as a blade, as quick as a one-timer, as tough as plexiglass. Oh, and having a solid dental plan, that's probably a good idea, too. Hit the ice all season long right here on the UMass Sports Network. 101.5, 1400-1240-WHMP. You want the very best opportunities for your child. Given the amount of time children spend in school each day, you want your child to be inspired, to be engaged, to love going to school. At Bement, each student experiences this every day. The Bement School in Deerfield is a close-knit community of students from around the valley and across the globe. Kindergarten through ninth grade, learning from each other in the classroom, rooting for each other on the athletic field, and celebrating each other on the stage. We are local, we are global, and our differences make us stronger. We interact face-to-face, share meals together every day, and open doors for one another. The true essence of your child's time at Bement is preparing for a life of integrity, of significance, of joy. Financial aid and transportation are available to help make a Bement school education possible. I'm Kim Laughlin, Director of Admission. Please contact me or visit our website. Bement will be the best investment you make in your child's future. 
Picture perfect days here in the Valley, and there's not a better place to celebrate those perfect days than at the Bridgeside Grill in Sunderland. The Bridgeside Grill has undergone a stunning transformation and expansion, and now it's time to revisit one of your favorite spots in the Valley. Check out the new and expanded bar area and dine by the warm and cozy fire. The Bridgeside Grill is open Tuesday through Thursday starting at 11.30, Friday and Saturday starting at 8, and don't forget Sunday brunch from 8 to 2. The Bridgeside Grill, right in the heart of downtown Sunderland. If you like to get an early start on filing your federal tax returns, the IRS says it has taken steps to help. Taxpayers will be able to file returns starting January 23rd. The tax agency says it hired more support staff and put resources in place to make the process easier. If you're worried about your school-aged children's online privacy, you might take a look at the education apps they've loaded for use at school. A new study from Internet Safety Labs found 96% of the educational apps used in schools share personal information about children and their families. Worker pay increases fell behind inflation last year for the second year in a row, leaving households worse off despite historically strong pay gains. But the Wall Street Journal reports that could change this year. It notes inflation is easing while wages continue to rise. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And we are back with this week's Playbill with Jackie Walsh and her guest director, Kimberly Overly Carlin from uh, Amherst Community Theaters. Uh, it sounds so delightful. Production, which is going to be, uh, I think, starting this weekend at Balcar Auditorium at the University of Massachusetts, of The Little Mermaid. Right. It's, Jackie, it just sounds terrific. This weekend and next weekend. And um, from what I hear, about 300 people have been involved behind the scenes and on, on stage and Wow, it's it's super exciting. So how do people get tickets, Kim? They go to Amherst Acts, that's AmherstACS.org, and you can get your tickets right there. There's a button to push. Excellent. all the information. Yep. That's great. And Bowker is a great place to have a play right in the middle of the UMass campus, really close to the student center. What about parking? It's quite a maze of yeah. little rows and parking lots and parking lot X. There's like... Five parking lots that have the same name. What do you well, say? The, the parking garage That's is what true. I recommend. Yes. Because they, we have a QR code. If you come to the show, you can use the QR code to only pay $3 for parking in the parking garage, and it's right across from Bowker oh, Auditorium. That's so really convenient, really easy. So I know you had extremely long days this weekend working on the play, mm -hmm. like a 13-hour day, an 8-hour day. And at the same time, you're doing Midsummer Night's Dream on top of this at the Academy at Charlemont. So, That's um, true. <laughs> yeah, so you go from one rehearsal race down to Amherst and uh, hopefully have time to eat at some point. So, um, I've been in plays you directed, including Mary Poppins at UMass, and you are such a fun and positive director. And I see this, I keep hearing you say, to people you're amazing and I love that it's great um so what's your general philosophy about directing what works for you well I I find that when I when I cast a show one of the things that I'm hoping to do is find something that's a little bit out of the comfort zone of everyone who gets cast so just a little bit of a challenge because I find that when people take on something that seems a little difficult 
or maybe actually is a little difficult, you know, they, they rise. They rise to it. And it's it feels really good to accomplish something. And the energy that gets sort of created from that is sort of buzzes around on the stage. And everyone gets excited, and you start to really feel like you've done something hard. Mm. Um, and even if it, it doesn't feel hard, it's always still really fun. Um, but I do like to challenge people because I think – that's one of the ways that we like if it, we if you dig into a character and really think about what they're thinking and, and and try to come from a place that you have never thought of before it really does create an environment of creativity and as a director i like to work with my actors and create sort of the mood of the show together cuz you, you know you you got to have creativity to make the magic happen on stage i think mm. And I don't think I've ever been in a tech week where there were no blow-ups or tears or tantrums, <laughs> even from adults, because you're exhausted mm -hmm. and you have this deadline, the first show, and everything has to come together, and sometimes it doesn't feel like it's going to get there. You guys look like, you know, you have four extra weeks of rehearsals. So, um, yeah, I've been really impressed with how little people are stressed out. And I'm sure that has a lot to do with you and some of the other people working on the play. Sure. And, you know, having a, a couple years to prepare helps, too. right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Although that's not true for the actors. The actors have had less time than all of the production team has. Um, but they are shining. And I am so, so, so proud of them. And. I, you know, they're just like, you, you know, Jackie, they're just a lovely, kind group of people to work with. Yes. So and some that of might the, be why we're not as stressed seeming. So we sort of love what we're doing. Yeah. The stage. But if I could squeeze ahead, a question sure. in here, Jackie, I'm, I'm very curious if you're doing Midsummer at the Academy of Tarlemont and at the same time you're doing um, The Little Mermaid here at, at, at uh, with Amherst Community Theater. Those are both fantastical settings. Don't you get like a little, you know, one is like this dreamy, am I asleep, am I awake? And the other one is I'm under underwater trying to live in the, on the land. They're both, don't you get confused about what you're trying to have the actors portray? You know, you'd think I would, <laughs> but I really don't. <laughs> I, I think perhaps if they were, if they were, very, very different, not as fantastical as you say, then I might be a little, I, I might have trouble shifting from one to the other. But since they're both from a, from sort of a, a playful, dreamlike place floating in the ocean, I, I don't feel like I'm, I'm sort of having to downshift or <laughs> zip, zip to different things. It does feel like a similar energy. So mm. in some ways it's helpful. Mm. <laughs> And I think it's not just the participants. The families also are impacted. I had a long conversation with a grandmother whose child is, um, I think she's the lionfish. She's got one of the best mm -hmm. costumes on. And um, she was just, she comes to every rehearsal and she's seen how the whole thing evolves. And she's as excited as the kids are. So it's not it's just. True. Yeah. Yeah. So and, how and we try to get as many family members involved as possible. Mm -hmm. So there's, you know, every person in the show has at least one volunteer helping out in some way in the show, which is part of why it's so fun because you get to do all these things with your family too. Mm. 
So people are going to walk in from a very bleak January scenery to this thing full of color and life and happiness. How excited do you expect the, the audience to be, who I'm sure a lot of them have not gone to theater for a few years? You know, I, I'm hopeful that the, what we've brought will just brighten the winter that we're having and give them something to laugh about, something to think about. I think there will be people who will want to come back for a second weekend. Mm -hmm. So if you haven't gotten your ticket yet, mm -hmm. I would say go get your ticket because I'm expecting the audience to be blown away. Excellent. I think so, too. So we've been speaking with Kim Carlin. She's the director of The Little Mermaid, which is going up this weekend and next at Bowker Auditorium at UMass on the UMass campus. You can get tickets again where, Kim? Amherstax.org. Excellent. And I just went, I'm just looking at the site right now, and I see the tickets are so affordable, 15 bucks for kids 10 and under, and 25 for adults, 20 for seniors and students, and um, you can get this Thursday, the 19th. It's $15 regardless of what your age is, so they're very affordable, and it sounds like an incredible production. Thank you so much, Jackie, for bringing it to our attention. I know I'm going to want to go. Thanks so much, Kim, for coming. This was great. Yeah, thanks. for It's my pleasure. Take care. The Little Mermaid, Balker Auditorium, look for Amherst Community Theater, and join us tomorrow for the afternoon buzz. See you, Jackie. See you, Dan. Bye-bye, Buzz. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Hearing the verdict and hearing the words racial animus were extremely painful for, certainly for myself and for the women and men of the Greenfield Police Department who really do go to work every day to serve the people of Greenfield. 101.5, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Grow Food Northampton helps you make the local food system better. This is Michael Skillcorn, Director of Programs. You can join us by shopping at Northampton Tuesday Market, getting Live a plot at our community news garden. Talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station.